0: I'm Lizzie, here with my friend Andrea, and we are your hosts for Letting It Percolate. Just as the best tasting coffee takes time to percolate, some of life's most interesting and important questions take time to truly explore.
1: So for today's episode, we will explore the question, who acts in your best interest? But due to some technical issues that occurred when we originally recorded this episode, we'll be pivoting from that topic slightly so our goal uh, today is to look at the question, this question through the lens of two real stories in which individuals attempt to defend their interests against a more powerful entity. And Lizzie's going to kick us off with the first story.
0: Yes, so this story is about a pharmaceutical company <laughs> whose name is GlaxoSmithKline. One word with each last name capitalized. And I will be referring to this company as GSK for obvious reasons. Um, so this story is um, kind of tragic, um, or what led to this story occurring. So there's a woman named Wendy Dolan, um, whose husband, who was 57 at the time, committed suicide after, shortly after beginning um an antidepressant um and so she filed a lawsuit in 2012 against the drug company gsk um, after that happened Uh, and so it's important to note he took the generic version um the antidepressant was paxil that's what gsk produces Um, but he was taking the generic um which gsk obviously doesn't produce um So, there's like a black box warning on that drug, as with many antidepressants, about increased suicide risk in those under age 25, but she was arguing in court that GSK had evidence that there was increased suicide risk in people, in adults, and older adults, but that the company neglected to put such a warning on their um, drug. And Mm -hmm. so, this went through, I think, one or two different courts, and the went before a jury and they ended up ruling in her favor for three million dollars um but then the gsk appealed and in 2018 the u.s court of appeals uh, overturned the verdict (laughs) um and so basically said that no you can't sue us for this for this specific reason um and so she yeah she didn't get that um $3 three million dollars dollars or that sense of justice um so yeah there's just really briefly for context um it was kind of confusing as I was researching this story because there's weird legislation that re- that has like requirements for Gsk as a company and also the fda um so like <laughs> for Gsk to be held liable for like a bad outcome from a generic drug that had already been decided in a prior case that those brand name companies can be held liable because the generic drugs are required to have the same labels on them with the same warnings. Um, the other piece of this was that GSK had attempted to show the FDA ev- what they believed was evidence of increased suicide risk in older adults. And the FDA repeatedly said, no, that's not actually evidence of that, or no, we're not going to include this label on Paxil and, and or the generic versions. And part of the reasoning on that was they're looking at the data and their are meta-analyses of the data. But part of it, too, with the FDA was like the FDA has these weird requirements that all SSRIs, uh, which is a form of antidepressant, have to have the same, like there has to be a high level of con- consistency in the labeling. And so it's just like, I felt really bad for this woman, Wendy Dolan, yeah. after reading about all this, because it's like all this technical minutiae, and at the end of the day, she didn't, like, her husband committed suicide after taking this drug, and the drug was found in his system, in the autopsy, and just to go through all that legal headache, to not win, um, mm. and to not get that sense of closure, um... So yeah. And the pharmaceutical kind of, one. <laughs>
1: uh, <laughs> it just boils down like human grief and suffering mm-hmm. to but then like oh, what am I saying? Like human grief and suffering but then it's like through the channel of a label or like lack thereof. Mm-hmm. Um it just, like, they they just don't equate at all. Like, the, the two issues don't, and mm. I guess that's maybe just an inevitable, like, reality with the legal system. Um, but, right. yeah, I just, I agree, I can't imagine how challenging that was for her, and just like, yeah, maybe demoralizing, knowing mm. that she's, like, lost her husband because of this, and she's losing on technicalities which in all honesty mm-hmm. it looks like even the like drug producer was was aware of and was like trying to address at one point and then because of this other FDA um, requirement
0: mm-hmm. it just
1: yeah that extra label and warning um, never got added on I guess one thing I do wonder as I'm thinking about this is how many people or how seriously people take, those kinds of warnings and cautions, um, right? Like right. in like in the U.S., we're we're very pre-programmed to expect side effects when taking any form of medication, um, mm-hmm. and I mean that that's a question we would never know the answer to. Like, would he still have taken that drug, or would his doctor still prescribed it? Um, if there was a warning that for, like, people, you know, I forget, how old was he? Mm-hmm. Did you say? He was
0: 57.
1: So maybe for, like, people 50 and older or something, it's been found to mm-hmm. increase the risk of suicide. We, we'll never know that, but... Um, or
0: or it could have the effect of his, whoever prescribed it, having follow-ups or extra check-ins or some other precaution
1: hmm. if you
0: did still choose to take it if there that's, was that warning.
1: Yeah, that's true.
0: I would even argue, and I'm not like a doctor or in the medical field per se, but I would argue that someone who's prescribing something, if it were to have had that black box label, which it didn't for his age range, but if it did and you prescribed it, I would argue that ethically you are mandated to like to do something other than to just let the individual decide because hmm. this is someone who's depressed and they're seeing you because they're depressed. They're trying to get medication for that. And so you can't expect the onus to really follow the individual as much in that case, because because of the nature of why they're even needing the drug in the first place. Hmm. So I would hope that, um, psychiatrists who are, you know, generally the ones prescribing those, some general practitioners do for SSRIs, but that they would have some mechanism where they call their patient, you know, three days later, a week later, whatever. Um, but then again, I don't know how that works with billing and all that all that minutiae on that side of things either.
1: Hmm. Like, are you for- referring to billable hours and that kind of thing? Or?
0: Yeah, and I don't know how that works for doctors, but...
1: <laughs> oh, quick aside, but the, like, mainstream healthcare system <laughs> is incredibly frustrating. Like, I can remember one specific appointment with a doctor... Um, it wasn't, like, a traditional, like, family practitioner, it was, like, a specialist, but mm-hmm. it was literally maybe a three-minute interaction. Like, the nurse <laughs> took all the info beforehand, like, normal, mm-hmm. and then the doctor comes in. First of all, like, she pretended she had met me before, but we hadn't met before.
0: Oh! And,
1: like, that was really so awkward. awkward. Oh, no. Um, but, like, I had met with someone else in her practice, so I think she got confused about that. So that was, like, <laughs> oh, whatever, but forgiven. Um okay. But it was, it was, like, even as someone who appreciates efficiency so much, it was way too efficient. Um, it was just, like, a mm. bullet point list that she went down, like, checked out a few things, and then, like, left me with prescription for two different drugs in my hand and, like, walked out... Mm-hmm. And I I remember just leaving that appointment, and my mom was, like, waiting in the waiting room. And I just started bawling when I got to her. Oh. I was like, I don't even know what just happened. Like, it was all <laughs> too fast to register. Yeah. And I feel like I was just given this gigantic and expensive Band-Aid for my problem. Yeah. But we didn't have a chance huh. at all to get to the root cause. And, mm. um, yeah, I don't know, like, how much she got paid for that three-minute interaction mm. with me. But... <laughs> I'm not a fan of the billable hour, so. (sighs)
0: Yes. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. That, man, that's rough, especially, like, when you're seeing a doctor for, you know, for something that maybe is, like really distressing for the patient and like they're really hoping for like some answers or for some insight to be generated or at least to be like genuinely listened to Mm -hmm. but I think you are not alone unfortunately in that experience of like I literally saw you for four minutes and you're prescribing me things and like you don't even you didn't even ask me all the questions (laughs) like so I've had to be really assertive at times with different doctors of, of like asking questions because they don't provide information and yes it's weird i'm Um, sure
1: like i i really i don't understand the traditional healthcare model that well i'm sure that there is a point to that and maybe it's like being able to see more patients throughout the day or something um mm -hmm. and it, it could be even pressure from like higher above them i have no idea but it is frustrating as a consumer of said services <laughs> when right. they're just, yeah, just way too efficient to the point <laughs> that I feel like effectiveness probably suffers. Mm.
0: Yeah. And it's like, all right, if I'm going to get that model, then it better be cheap. And guess what? It's not cheap for yeah. me, at least. <laughs> and so I have major issues with that as well. But yes, another topic for another day. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Yeah, I think that kind of just highlights, along with what this woman experienced, the whole thing. The gigantic systems that are interlocking in this case are just, like, faulty, you know? They do their job, these systems, meaning, like, medicine and pharmaceuticals and the legal system. um, I think they do their job enough so that we don't have, like, anarchy. (laughs) But they also don't do it enough so that there's a lot of dissatisfaction and pain, literal and emotional. I should say physical and emotional, because emotional pain is still literal pain. Um,
1: Yeah, I mean, I think pretty clearly um, in this specific case, the legal system, um, well... So, the lawyers that... Uh, what was her name? The lady's name. I forget. Wendy. Yeah. The lawyers that Wendy hired, like... Obviously, they they were trying to act in her best interest. Um, and I think it could maybe even be argued that GSK, like, in their research and development stages, were trying to act in the best interests of some of their potential older consumers. Um, but... Ultimately, her best interest, at least in this lens of, like, being compensated and just, like, having that legal justice carried out, um, her best interest wasn't successfully acted upon. And that's frustrating, um, that we, we do have systems that are in place to bring that sense of, like, justice and relief and compensation and, um penance and all these things but um yeah they're they're not perfect and that's kind of when you're caught up in it particularly in an emotional way that's kind of a hard thing to accept
0: yeah yeah i also like this is a um broader um question i guess for like that i just have because i'm not a lawyer (laughs) um but like the putting an emotion uh price no not a price like a dollar amount on, like, emotional damages, you know, that sort of thing, like, that has always felt really weird to me, Mm. um, insofar as it extends beyond, like, lawyer fees and things that are, like, legitimately, like, countable, it's, like, how do they determine, oh, this type of tragedy is worth, like, one million (laughs) dollars, like, to be, I don't know, like, that's, I, I know nothing about that, I don't know if you have any insight at all, Andrea, but.
1: Oh, goodness. No, I, I have no idea how they quantify that. Um, maybe I will be learning that in the future, but I yeah. do remember when I was um, doing some of the research and looking at one of the links that you sent me, Lizzie, with that classic McDonald's case that mm. a lot of people are familiar with, with the really hot coffee that the lady like got, I don't even remember what degree burns, but like very I think tits, it was third degree. Yeah, third degree burns on her legs or something. Um, it, she- It got, like,
0: trapped in her pantyhose. Sorry.
1: Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, it just sounds awful. She received, like, two for- or they like, two dollar amounts, I guess, like, ultimately awarded, and one, which was a smaller chunk, was for, like, I forget what they called it, but it was essentially emotional damages, I believe. Mm. And then there was a larger amount that was punitive, like, trying to punish McDonald's for, mm. um, carelessness and um whatever else but yeah i i do remember reading that she got some kind of compensation for just basically like the distress and the trauma Mm. that she had to endure because of their um oversight so
0: and the hospital fees i'm pretty sure she had to get like skin grafts and reconstructive surgery and like her legs for the skin where it was like third degree burns that's crazy. But that lady got a bad rap with McDonald's, like, attempts at a smear campaign, PR-wise.
1: Right, I remember But that, that's saying, a whole other thing. Yeah, yeah, we won't go there right now, but I remember you talking about, yeah, how your high school teacher explained the flip side, the lesser-known side of that case.
0: Yeah, the true side, as <laughs> one might say. All right, Andrea, I think your story is a bit more uplifting than mine was, so why don't you... <laughs> <laughs> Enlighten
1: us. I hope so. (laughs) Um, So this was a Supreme Court case that was decided kind of toward the end of the Vietnam War. So 1969 is when it was decided. And it's called Tinker v. Des Moines. And essentially, there was a public school in Des Moines, Iowa where some students decided they wanted to wear these black armbands to protest the Vietnam War, but to do so in a silent way. Um, hmm. Yeah, basically the idea of the armbands was like, we're not doing anything crazy and flashy, but like it's like a Standing in Solidarity-esque move, I guess I would say. Mm-hmm. And so um, before they wore the the armbands to school to protest somehow their principal found out that they were planning to do this and warned them that if they did wear the armbands to school, they would be suspended. Well, they, um, classic high school student move here, (laughs) but also not. They did (laughs) decide to wear the armbands and Mm. then they were suspended as the principal had promised or threatened. (laughs) So, uh, during the time they were suspended, their parents sued the school saying that their children's rights of free speech had been violated. And uh, I guess it this case must have risen a couple layers through the court system. It eventually made its way mm-hmm. to a U.S. district court, which did side with the school and the principal, uh, basically deciding that wearing the armbands could disrupt learning. The students then appealed to a U.S. court of appeals and mm-hmm they lost their case there as well and they appealed once more to the u.s supreme court interestingly Mm -hmm. the supreme court ruled in a 7-2 decision in favor of the students so they uh they agreed with the students basic claim that their free their freedom of speech should be protected and a quote from the the uh, decision was that students don't shed their constitutional rights at the schoolhouse gates.
0: Mm. Um, Yeah, baby.
1: (laughs) It fires me up. (laughs) Yes, it is empowering. Um, (laughs) And another, I think, important um, part of the Supreme court's decision was that because they said the school officials couldn't censor student speech Um, The caveat was they could censor it if it was materially and substantially disruptive to the educational process. And so in this uh, instance, the Supreme Court decided that wearing the black armbands in a silent protest of the Vietnam War wasn't materially and substantially disruptive to the educational process. So that was kind of their (laughs) test that they established. Mm -hmm. Um, And yeah I think this is a big win for public school kids. Um, i I do remember like in middle school social studies talking about <laughs> how like we don't carry all of our First Amendment rights with us through the doors of a public school. Yeah, I remember that that too. (laughs) Yeah, and um, I guess that's like a good thing to be aware of. I guess part of it is because like the educational setting is special or distinct in some ways. And so the goal, I mean, Mm -hmm. I don't think the goal is like to take people's rights away, but the goal is just to like set on a pedestal or like a higher priority the idea of education um, mm-hmm. And interestingly, along those lines, there's there are two other cases I found that happened after Tinker v. Des Moines. Um, one in which some students wrote articles about teen pregnancy, and their principal um, curated the articles and basically didn't allow them to be published because he thought that they might suggest the school had a certain position on teen pregnancy that it didn't necessarily have, and so... He was trying to prevent, like, confusion about what the school's values were. And the court actually ruled in favor of the school in that case and against the students, um, basically saying that, like, a student's free speech rights could be trumped by, um, how would I put this, like, an accurate, the need to accurately reflect a school's values and this, the paper that these articles were in was like a school-specific um,
0: paper, mm. and
1: so it, okay. it was associated pretty closely with the school. So I found that interesting. And then another um, pretty prominent case was Morris v. Friedrich, and in that one, a student um, brought a drug-related banner to school, and basically the court <laughs> the court was like, yeah, like you have free speech, but when you're openly advocating for drug use we kind of have to draw a line (laughs) so Mm. um yeah that's another essentially trump card i guess to free speech that students would have in public schools and Mm -hmm. to be honest especially with the drug use case like i hope that most rational people would see that as like fair um i know people can get all up in arms when they hear free speech rights have been um abridged or shut down but you know there are some cases i think where they're like yeah. it's legitimate and it's for the for the better um for the good so yeah, yeah and there there are other caveats as well um ways mm-hmm. that free speech can be restricted but anyhow i'm kind of <laughs> rambling i do think this is a really uh, encouraging case especially to kids who are maybe in public school right now Um, or at a public university or something just knowing that we carry with us the ability to speak so many things out loud Mm -hmm. or to demonstrate um through Mm -hmm. clothing or whatever our ideas and our convictions um yeah without having someone be able to shut us down so yeah i think that's i don't know it makes me feel like oh i'm a proud American and I like I have my freedom of speech. So
0: Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I think we at least I take that for granted so much. Like hmm. don't even realize it's you know this the sort of like thing where like you don't realize like how awesome your ankle is working until you have a broken ankle. Like hmm. I've never been in a a like um truly restrictive setting where I felt like there was I did not have these freedoms that I'm used to having and so there's a degree to which I just don't understand the like the greatness maybe <laughs> of some of the freedoms um although I would I think there's probably like conversations be had about like different people's experiences of like whether they were allowed to have their freedoms you know because when when a freedom of speech or of um, assembly or whatever it may be is violated, then it's like okay, now we have to take action, and maybe we don't have the bandwidth or like the capacity to like legislate, <laughs> you know, or not legislate. Like sorry every to like case. prosecute. Yeah, like if you're the recipient of like an unjust violation of your rights, like what are you gonna do? Is it are you mm-hmm. just gonna tolerate it, or are you going to like? press charges which could be a a nightmare for various reasons. <laughs> and so the onus still falls on you to like defend your rights. So and I think some people groups in this country have had to do that obviously like way more than others. Hmm. Um and I just wanted to like recognize that. Yeah, yeah, I think in any case this this case you shared like to me it's so it fires me up so much like I said because <laughs> it's like These students, also with the Vietnam War, now I'm rambling, but like, (laughs) (laughs) my understanding is that like, the government kind of shielded the American people from the truth of like how badly the Vietnam War was going for a long time until it became like intolerable and there were all these protests. Um, And so for student, for high school students to be civically engaged and to be aware and to care, like to me, going back to like the, one of the court's, prior to the Supreme Court was like, oh, this is going to disrupt learning if you wear a black armband that in protest of the Vietnam War. Like, I think you could argue that it's good. Yeah, it could disrupt learn- your like desires for learning, mm. <laughs> but maybe it could encourage other types of learning. Like, oh, what's going on in Vietnam? <laughs>
1: like- yes. <laughs> like, yeah, more real world, relevant, engaging kind of learning um, just yeah. by the nature of this is actually happening right now that yeah that makes me think of um in one of my classes when i studied abroad in the netherlands there was this guy who was actually a syrian refugee and he had left his Mm -hmm. entire family um in syria to come to the netherlands and study at uh maastricht university where i happen to be studying and just the way that he, like, engaged in class and, like, the effort that you could mm. tell he put in to mm. his writing and to his thoughts and discussion, like, it was just, he valued education more than I did, I mm. think, um, and I, I remember talking to him after class one day and just kind of, you know, just trying to learn about his life and, like, why he had, hmm. um, chosen to come to the Netherlands and, yeah. um, Wow. I think, I think his goal, it's been a while, but I think his goal was, like, to get a job and eventually be able to, like, support his family and uh, pull them out of Syria. Like, be able to support them outside Mm. the country. And I don't remember all the specifics of, like, why they had to be separated. I know it's it's Mm. hard to get out. Um, Yeah. Mm. But anyhow, that kind of just, like, real world encounter with someone during the syria um crisis and unfortunately the ongoing crisis in syria um it Mm -hmm. made it so much more real and like yeah i learned some interesting stuff in that class but i think what i remember is not what i really learned in Mm -hmm. that class and it was like getting to interact with him and like see the way that he um really invested in his education and was grateful for it and was grateful to be able to talk with other students so yeah Um, wow yeah I just you know like that kind of real world stuff you can't write into a curriculum yeah uh, it happens and and I think Mm -hmm. it's great when education allows for it to happen I think um just like kind of tying it up that's why or not tying it up but like that's why protecting our free speech rights um as students in public spheres is so important because, mm-hmm. like, sometimes those are life-changing interactions or encounters that we have, whether it's with an ongoing war or with a person who is a refugee or um, whatever it may be. Like, that can really change trajectories. Um, I think it'd be a shame to lose lose those opportunities um, by, right. like, effectively, metaphorically duct-taping students' mouths <laughs> shut, basically. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Yeah, hopefully not literally in that case. Oh, gosh. Um, (laughs) I think that um, a lot of the... There were only a handful of times, I think, in my high school, um, like, in-school experiences where a teacher, you know, by their individual choice chose to, like, not do classes planned that day but rather to, like, talk about current events. Like, the handful of times that, that... And to do it in a meaningful way the handful of times that that did happen i remember it being like so engaging and so much more interesting and yet i understand the need for like some semblance of like a curriculum and you know standards <laughs> and consistency like there are reasons that we have those things um so i guess it's a matter of like balancing um that with being flexible when like real things are happening in the world and like the classroom is a great environment. I would argue it's, like, <laughs> that's why classrooms are exist, It's like, to freely exchange ideas about real things that are happening. Um, so.
1: Hmm.
0: It's, it's a hard balance, I would, I think, though, from admin perspective, also from teachers who are also, like, if I was a teacher, like, <laughs> that's more work to, like, try to be flexible and incorporate that kind of stuff. But,
1: hmm them yeah um man this is like a whole other rabbit trail where we should not go down right now but i do think standardized testing probably oh
0: Oh, boy oh boy why
1: not touch on all the hot button topics tonight (laughs) um standardized testing i would imagine encourages a little bit more reliance on curriculum versus, you know, versus, like, creating space for that creative thought and discussion. Um, And even, like, I'm thinking a little bit of, like, Socratic method of Mm. teaching where, like... I love that. Yes, like, you do, like, a reading or something on your own and then come together and the discussion is, like, led by the students and their questions and reflections from the reading. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I Anyhow, I, I think maybe standardized testing um, and the amount of weight that we have decided to put on it yes. and the frequency of it, those things yes. all combined. <laughs> um, maybe not the testing itself. So that, that's why I'm qualifying it. But the yes. other things associated with it maybe are not helpful in terms of like, yeah, just catering to a more Socratic style of learning. Mm-hmm. Which is unfortunate.
0: What do you think about determining what or how we, and we kind of got on this like from different angles, but like directly how to determine what is materially and substantially disruptive in the classroom. Mm -hmm. Like that's so subjective. (laughs) (laughs) It really is like beyond the extremes of like, I'm wearing a like Budweiser shirt in class. Like I'm pretty sure a classmate did that. In high school, <laughs> dress code violation.
1: <laughs> I remember in middle school, a classmate wore a Hooter shirt to school. <laughs> and my science in teacher, middle school. Yeah, in middle school,
0: my science wow. teacher was like,
1: "That shirt is inappropriate." That's
0: so sad. Oh, <laughs> that just makes me sad. That's not even like funny to me. Oh man.
1: <sighs> yeah, it is sad. There's a part of me that wonders, like, yeah, I think I think this person understood what it was. Mm. Anyhow. (laughs) Um,
0: (laughs) Oh, boy.
1: Yeah, I, you know, my first response to that question, like, how do we determine if it's materially and substantially disruptive, is I think that's a question for the lawyers who Mm -hmm. get paid the big buck. Like, I think that's part of why they get compensated as they do, um, Mm. because, and, like, judges and justices. I think that's that's kind of where their discretion comes in. Um, right.
0: Huh.
1: I I was a little surprised that and maybe I could go back and like read the um decision explained. I was a little surprised that there wasn't like a I was expecting a test almost of like okay, if it meets this mm. this and this criteria, then it is materially or substantially disruptive or maybe it has to be the combination of both. I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. But you know, in the case of like wearing an armband, yeah, I feel like that's so far away on the spectrum from having a material or a substantial disruption mm-hmm. that, like, yeah, I can see why it was a 7 2 vote if that's the test they were using. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I could know th- you
0: could go ahead,
1: I could throw out ideas or images in my head of what would be like really disruptive but that's just my own thoughts i don't really know yeah i feel like those are pretty subjective as well
0: yeah i was just gonna say even with the black armbands which i just to clarify before i say what i'm about to say i agree with the seven two i agree with the seven (laughs) um (laughs) on the ruling there but you could argue that maybe it's not the black armbands in and of themselves that are disruptive, but the fact that it would generate so much buzz and conversation that, like, mm-hmm. normal classroom proceedings couldn't occur. And I, I wonder what the arguments around that were in those courts. In those That's courtrooms. a really good point. But I wonder, like, I don't know what the language of, like, materially and substantially, like, I don't even know what that means in practical terms. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe it's because you can't point to a black armband in and of itself and say... That it would do that, but then it's like everything's symbolic anyway. Hmm. That's like really philosophical claim I just made. (laughs) But like
1: (laughs) a classic Lizzie move, pulling us to the level of meta. (laughs) (laughs) No, but that okay. You make a great point. I love this because yeah, I guess does the question boil down to the armband itself, or does it expand to include this greater scope of impact? Mm -hmm. And if if it does include impact, like to what degree? Yeah, yeah, and are we talking impact for a day at school? Like, is that enough that it's materially and substantially disruptive? Mm. Or are we talking, like, for an entire month, our kids haven't stopped chatting about the Vietnam Mm. War. And... um... Mm -hmm. (laughs) Okay, sorry. Quick uh, (laughs) aside. This does remind me of, in high school, I don't know... It wasn't every year, but some years, like, pranks, senior pranks were really big.
0: Yeah. And
1: I remember, like, there was a year that seniors released crickets in the yeah. cafeteria. What? Um. Yeah, like, live no. crickets. And, like, uh-uh. that was kind of cray. And then it might have been the same year, they <laughs> had smoke bombs that they released no. in the hallways. And so I remember seeing one. I was, like, walking in between classes in this, like big cloud of blue smoke just, like, <laughs> oh appeared out of nowhere. Aww. And it was honestly really freaky, because it was kind of like, is this some poisonous gas? Like, what oh, is this? Yeah. It was fine. It was just a smoke bomb. Um,
0: Yikes. And
1: I know <laughs> at our, like, <laughs> rival school in our township one year, the seniors found these gigantic rocks, like, boulders, and somehow got access to like a, uh, what would you call it? Not a backhoe, but... Um, anyhow, like, some piece of equipment that can move heavy things, and they put Mm. a big boulder in each teacher and administrator's parking spot at the school, (gasps) so that there, like, wasn't enough room for all of them (gasps) to park when they got to school.
0: (laughs) That's funny. See, that's funny. That's, like, (laughs) the best one out of those three, (laughs) to me. Um,
1: but, yeah, I I feel like um i remember our principal coming on the announcements and being like pretty mad about i don't <laughs> remember if it was the crickets one or the um smoke bombs one i'd be mad
0: about the crickets Yo. yeah yeah what
1: the and heck? I, <laughs> there, I think there were mice too also i don't remember okay. seeing any mice i probably would have passed out because <laughs> i really hate mice. i love yes. mice oh okay. <laughs> Do, yeah. what are your feelings on spiders
0: no see i that's like crickets and all creepy crawly things yes including spiders and cockroaches and all that jazz uh-uh it's so mice fascinating. bats rats yes because they're like at least they're like not creepy and crawly
1: ew but they are they're like furry <laughs> and they like scramble everywhere with their little paws oh their but they're paws so, cute. Are so gross and like moles oh my gosh oh moles, no moles like, are so gross. do they even cute. have eyes i don't know if they have eyes I think oh my gosh We're like, (laughs) we are not on the same page on this topic. But the reason I ask is because I feel like a lot of people are one or the other. It's kind of a cat dog situation. It's Uh, like, are you rodents or insects? No, I can do like I can do spiders and like. Oh, lizards shoot. and stuff like that. I'm cool with that stuff. I think as soon Okay, as you lizards are hair... not in the same
0: group as spiders. <laughs> lizards, being one myself, you know, as a nickname.
1: You would know.
0: <laughs> lizards are acceptable.
1: Okay, fine. But like, yeah, crickets or cicadas. Bees. Oh, okay. Wasps. We're not, no, bees They're all the same thing. Wasps, no, they're not. They're all the
0: same. It's just a bug. <laughs> That's all it is.
1: I'm not going to waste more air time. Debating this, yeah. But I do find it interesting that a lot of people fall on one side or the other
0: of the debate. We can agree on that.
1: <laughs> so you can come fend off all the mice from me and I will kill your spiders. And crickets. And crickets.
0: <laughs> okay. Deal. <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, well, before we digress any further, I'm just going <laughs> to wrap us up. So Sounds thanks, good. <laughs> thanks for tuning in to letting it percolate. We hope that you connected with what we talked about in today's episode and that your thoughts have been sufficiently percolated in the next episode our format is going to be a bit different because it will be our final episode so in the first half we will briefly explore the question what exactly happens in therapy and then we will reflect after that on the experience our experience of making this podcast and we'll share some of what we've learned along the way And uh, we're hoping it's just a good way to kind of wrap things up and just appreciate, um, yeah, just the stuff that has come up and the support that we've gotten from all of our listeners. So uh, with that, we will talk to you next time.